0: A brief survey of the errors that came to expression in the early church should enable us to see more clearly of how little importance was the existence of pre in that period. Church history records the following heresies. 1. Docetism. This error arose before the end of the first century. Its distinguishing feature was the idea that all matter is inherently evil. It held, therefore, that Christ really did not become incarnate, since to have done so would have meant coming in contact with that which was sinful, but that he only seemed to have a human body. It's from the Greek verb dokeo, meaning to seem. 2. Gnosticism The Gnostics emphasized the intellectual side of Christianity to an exaggerated degree. It was an attempt to restate Christianity so as to fit it into current philosophy and science. 3. Montanism. This originated in Asia Minor about 156 A.D. Montanus, the leader of the movement, maintained that he was the mouthpiece of the Paraclete, the Comforter, Helper that Christ promised (John 14:16), and that the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the New Jerusalem in one of the towns of Phyregyra was soon to occur. Four. Monarchianism. This error arose in the 3rd century. Its purpose was to prove that Christians do not worship more gods than one, and to accomplish this it held that the Son and the Holy Spirit either were emanations from God the Father, or that they were different forms in which the Father chose to manifest himself at different times. 5. Sabellianism This corresponded in general to what we know as Unitarianism. According to this school, the terms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were nearly three different modes in which the one God manifested himself. 6. Asceticism Some believe that the unmarried state was holier than the married state, much as Roman Catholic priests and nuns do today. Those who held this view withdrew from the world, forbade marriage, and lived a secluded life. 7. Arianism This was the most dangerous and widespread error in the early church. Arius, a presbyter in Alexandria, Egypt, from whom it takes its name, denied that Christ was the same in substance or equal with the Father in power and glory, and asserted that he was only like or similar to the Father, a person between God and man. Arianism denied that the Son had existed from eternity and held that he was the first creation and that he in turn created the world. This heresy aroused prolonged controversy, was opposed by the great Athanasius, and was condemned by the council of Nicaea in the year 325. 8. Apollinarianism This teaching denied the true humanity of Jesus. Specifically, it denied that he had a truly human mind that is, a reasoning mind, that reached conclusions through mental processes, as ours does. In effect, it asserted that he was God masquerading in human flesh. This error was condemned by the Council of Constantinople in the year 381. 9. Nestorianism Nestorianism so divided the person of Christ as to give him a dual personality, one divine and one human and, in effect, assumed him to be two persons in unity. It became very widespread and influential. It was condemned by the Council of Ephesus in 431, but persisted for centuries in some Eastern groups. 10. Eudachidianism This was the opposite of Nestorianism. It so united or blended the two natures as to make a third, which was neither divine nor human. It was condemned by the Council of Chalcedon in 451. 11. Pelagianism Pelagius denied the doctrine of original or inherited sin. He held that mankind was injured by Adam's fall only as it set a bad example. Augustine wrote some of his more important works against this error. It was condemned by the Council of Ephesus in 431. 12. Apostolic Authority The idea of episcopal succession or the transmission of apostolic authority from importantly placed bishops to their successors arose quite early and was stressed in the writings of Irenaeus about the year 160. This became the practical doctrine by which authority was transmitted from one pope to another. Add to these premillennialism and you have a roster of the principal errors in the early church. Surely those first centuries, in the main, the post-apostolic, and the anti era, do not form an ideal period in which to look for purity of doctrine. Rather, it was quite fertile in producing false doctrines. It should be noted that all of these errors existed before or during the lifetime of Augustine, who died in 430, whom the premillennialists are in the habit of blaming for having subverted their doctrine. The sweeping claims made by some that the early church was predominantly premillennial are now known to have been greatly exaggerated. In the writings of only a few of the anti church fathers is the subject even mentioned, and when it is mentioned it is in an elementary form having little in common with present-day dispensationalism. It never was strong enough to be written into any of the creeds. In view of the zeal that premillennialists have for their doctrine we can be quite sure that if they had been in the majority in the early church they would have written it into the creeds. The two really outstanding theologians of the period, Oregon and Augustine, were strongly opposed to premillennialism. As far as its presence in the early church is concerned, surely it can be argued with as much reason that it was one of those immature and unscriptural beliefs that flourished before the church had time to work out the true system of theology as that its presence at that time is an indication of purity of faith. In any event, so thoroughly did Augustine do his work in refuting it that it practically disappeared for a thousand years as an organized system of thought and was not seriously put forth again until the time of the Protestant Reformation. At that time it was advocated by numerous independent groups but was solidly opposed by the Reformers themselves. Since that time it has never been strong enough to be written into any of the principal church creeds. The dispensational interpretation was not even suggested until late in the 16th century and was not taken up by any influential church group until the early 19th century. At that time it was essentially a reaction against the rigid formalism and lack of spiritual life in the Church of England. The first activity was manifested in individual study groups in Dublin, Ireland, in 1825. There was then no thought of forming a new denomination. In 1830, a strong movement developed in the town of Plymouth in southwestern England, from which later came the name Plymouth Brethren. The most prominent leader in this movement was John N. Darby. But while the dispensational movement did not gain popular recognition until the rise of the Plymouth Brethren, its real origin is traced to a Jesuit monk, Ribera, who lived in the early Reformation era. The standard Protestant interpretation at that time was that the Pope was the Antichrist and that the sins of the Roman Catholic Church were set forth in the 17th chapter of the Book of Revelation under the figure of the woman arrayed in purple and scarlet Sitting upon the scarlet colored beast. In defense of the Roman Catholic Church, the monk Ribera put forth the Futurist interpretation of the Book of Revelation. Dr. H. Grattan Guinness, in his Approaching End of the Age, says In its present form, the Futurist interpretation, it may be said to have originated at the end of the 16th century with the Jesuit Ribera, who moved like Alcazar to relieve the papacy from the terrible stigma cast upon it by the Protestant interpretation, tried to do so by referring these prophecies to the distant future instead of, like Alcazara, to the distant past. A quote on page 100. Eric C. Peters says, The method was invented by the Jesuit Ribera in 1585. Strangely, the modern futurists make no mention of him in their writings but be that as it may, to Ribera goes the credit for starting the Futurist Fire. It was first set adrift by the Roman Catholic Ribera for the sole purpose of confusing Protestants. The truth of this statement cannot be denied, for copies of Ribera's original work are still in existence. A quote from a booklet, Antichrist and the Scarlet Woman, pages 4 and 5. Dr. Ellis says, The Futurist interpretation is traced back to the Jesuit Ribera, A.D. 1580, whose aim was to disprove the claim of the Reformers that the Pope was the Antichrist. He adds that, its acceptance by the Brethren was not due of course to any objection to the Protestant interpretation as such, but to the fact that their literal interpretation of prophecy and the refusal to admit that predicted events were to precede the Rapture made their acceptance of this system of interpretation inevitable. A quote from Prophecy and the Church, page 297. And Baron Procelli, in a booklet published by the Protestant Truth Society, London, England, says, Jesuit Ribera was the father of the doctrine of future Antichrist, that is, that the Pope is not Antichrist, for Antichrist will not appear till the end of the age. But how did it become a Protestant dogma? The answer is Maitland, Todd, and Newman. Newman deserted to Rome and became a cardinal. These pseudo-Protestants transplanted Ribera's doctrine into the Protestant church. It was quite simple for they were accepted members and influential leaders of that faith in their day, 1825 to 1845. From Maitland's time, the Futurist pedigree is easy to trace. Maitland, Todd, Newman, Kelly, Darby, the Plymouth Brethren, who brought it to the U.S., Seiss, Dr. Gray, Griffith Thomas, and others, and the many futurists who are still peddling this puerile, papist fantasy. But while dispensationalism had its origin abroad, it has had its greatest success in the United States. Darby made several visits to the United States and Canada, About 1870, a St. Louis minister, James H. Brooks, wrote a book, Maranatha, or The Lord Cometh, which passed through many editions and was very influential in spreading dispensational ideas. In 1878, William E. Blackstone, a Methodist minister, published his book, Jesus is Coming, and with the exception of the Schofield Bible, this book undoubtedly has done more than any other to popularize the dispensational system. It has been translated into many languages, and its circulation has run into the hundreds of thousands. It deserves to be treated as an authority on the subject, since it carries the unqualified endorsement of many well-known premillennialists, such as R. A. Torrey, J. Wilbur Chapman, A. T. Pearson, James M. Gray, W. J. Erdman, William G. Moorhead, and others. However, we are inclined to agree with Dr. Snowden when he says that it is the most unscholarly book on the subject we have found and further that it is singularly destitute of historical and critical sense in its interpretation of scripture and no amount of pious language will make up for this lack. A quote from The Coming of the Lord, pages 30 and 39. It should be in order at this point to give some information about Dr. Schofield. Cyrus Ingerson Schofield was born in Michigan in 1843. When he was quite young, the family moved to Tennessee where he grew up. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he enlisted in the Confederate Army. He was in a number of bloody battles. After the war, he went to St. Louis where he began the study of law and entered the legal profession. Later, he became a practicing attorney in Washington, D.C. and was also active in politics. During this time, he became a heavy drinker. He was visited on several occasions by another young lawyer who was a Christian and who was the means of his conversion. That was in 1879, and shortly afterward, he joined the Congregational Church in St. Louis. He continued the practice of law, but three years later received a call to become the minister of a small Congregational Church in Dallas, Texas, and without any intervening theological training, was ordained to the ministry. In St. Louis, he became acquainted with James H. Brooks, author of the dispensational book, Maranatha. He served the church in Dallas from 1882 to 1895, during which time it had a rapid growth. In 1895, Dwight L. Moody invited him to become pastor of the Congregational Church in East Northfield, Massachusetts, which was Moody's own place of worship. This was four years before Moody's death. The Schofield Bible As Schofield continued his study of the Bible, he was troubled by certain difficult passages. He soon hit upon the idea of making brief notes in the Bible to help him over these. This practice was expanded, and eventually he conceived the idea of a set of explanatory notes for the entire Bible. His pastorate at East Northfield continued for seven years. In 1902, he gave up this pastorate and returned to the church in Dallas in order that he might have more time to work on the set of Bible notes that he was developing. To assist him in this work, he sought the assistance of a number of outstanding ministers and the result was what we know as the Schofield Reference Bible. This Bible contained the King James Version with a system of chain references and footnotes of varied character and value printed in such a way that as a person reads the Bible, he is bound also to read the explanatory notes. For years, Schofield had studiously absorbed the doctrines of John in Darby, and naturally it was this system which found expression in his notes. He did not accept Darby's doctrine of the church, but he did accept his eschatology in its totality. Associated with Schofield in the development of this Bible were the following eight men. Henry G. Weston, President of Crozier Theological Seminary James M. Gray, President of Moody Bible Institute William J. Erdman, Niagara Bible Conference Secretary Arthur T. Pearson, Author, Editor, Teacher W. G. Moorhead, President of Xenia Theological Seminary Elmore Harris, President of Toronto Bible Institute Arnold C. Gabeline, author, editor of Our Hope. William L. Pettengill, author, editor, and teacher. As we have indicated, the Schofield Bible is, in effect, the standard textbook for all dispensational groups. The fact that approximately three million copies of this book have been printed in this country since its publication in nineteen oh nine is evidence of its widespread influence. Thousands of Christians make it their principal source of biblical knowledge. Schofield assured himself of a very large reading audience and a very favorable reception to his views, not by presenting his explanatory notes in a separate commentary, in which case they probably would have had no more influence than many another book, but by putting them in the Bible in such a way that they would be read as the Bible is read. Imagine the confusion that would result if other schools of thought put out Bibles with notes setting forth postmillennial, amillennial, historic premillennial, Calvinistic, and Arminian systems, not to mention the endless interpretations that would result if the various denominations so presented their views. The best policy, we believe, is that of the British and Foreign Bible Society, which for more than a hundred years, as it has printed and distributed the doctrines, has had as its slogan the words without note or comment. This same policy was adopted by the American Bible Society and it has been approved by the general public and by the rank and file of the Christian Church. The false sense of authority engendered by printing a set of explanatory notes in the Bible and the manner in which it has led many astray is well illustrated in the admission of the late Dr. Harry Rimmer himself a well-known Bible scholar and evangelist. For twenty years, he said, I also believed and taught that the Roman Empire would be restored in the last days of the age in which we live. I must confess that in so doing I depended largely upon the ideas and interpretation which I had imbibed from great and godly teachers in whom I had unlimited confidence. I did not realize that I was teaching interpretation of the text in place of the word itself, and had never made an exhaustive study of the scriptures involved in this idea. I went over these prophecies again and was finally led to see that my only authority for maintaining that the Roman Empire would be rebuilt was a footnote in my favorite edition of a study Bible. So for 20 years I had taught as a prophecy of God's word a human conclusion based upon an ambiguous paragraph a quote from the coming league and the Roman dream pages 42 and 44 the words just quoted reveal the ease with which even ministers can be led astray with assumptions which have no scriptural foundation but are merely set forth as standard doctrine by some particular group we are convinced that much of that which passes for Bible study in the dispensational system ultimately rests on nothing more substantial than a footnote somewhere in the Scofield Bible Particularly objectionable, too, is the air of finality with which the Schofield opinions are given, as if they were the assured results of modern biblical knowledge. Opposing views are almost completely ignored, and in fact so far as any mention of them is concerned, one would scarcely know that there are any other views. This has been characterized by some who differ with dispensationalism as excellent psychology employed to teach bad theology. Such procedure shows a glaring lack of scholarship. True scholars do not hesitate to state the position of an opponent and then expose the errors, if there are any. Such procedure as that followed in the Schofield Bible reveals a conscious weakness in the system, a reluctance to join the battle and face the logical conclusions. It has often been said that a person really does not know either side of a question until he knows both sides. Another item that should also be mentioned is Schofield's use of Usher's chronology, through which he assumes responsibility for numerous fixed dates in Old Testament history. Many of these are at best only approximate, and their inclusion in a work such as this gives an appearance of accurate knowledge which in many instances is not available dr albertus peters after a discussion of the distinctive dispensational views set forth in this bible says it is easily understood that such views as this must seriously influence first the interpretation of the old testament prophecies and then the exegesis of numerous passages in the new testament and so indeed they do it is not uncommon for those who are introduced to the schofield bible to testify in great enthusiasm that it has made the Bible a new book for them. It must be so if they yield themselves to its influence and accept it as authoritative. Their Bible is then no longer the Bible of the early church or of the Reformed or of the fathers of the Reformed faith. It has been transformed into a Jewish book in the sense that the traditional interpretation of the synagogue, not of the church, must be regarded as correct. A quote from A Candid Examination of the Schofield Bible, page 25. We cite two further quotations from Dr. Peters. Concerning the widespread influence of the Schofield Bible, he says, It may fairly be called one of the most influential. Perhaps it is the most influential single book thrust into the religious life of America during the 20th century. A quote on page 5. And after saying that, because of the widespread use of the Schofield Bible, every minister should make himself familiar with its contents, he adds, For good as the intentions of the author were, and good as the faith and zeal of his followers are, this book must be pronounced from the standpoint of the Reformed theology and with a view to the peace and prosperity of our churches, one of the most dangerous books on the market. Its circulation is no aid to sound Bible study and true scriptural knowledge, but rather the contrary. Its use should be quietly and tactfully, but persistently and vigilantly opposed, and our congregations should be diligently instructed in a better interpretation of the Word of God. A quote on page 27. The virtue of the Schofield Bible is that it sets forth an evangelical theology. The primary doctrines of the Christian faith, such as the full inspiration and authority of the scriptures, the trinity, the deity of Christ, the atonement, justification by faith, the resurrection of the body, final judgment, heaven and hell, are set forth clearly and without any compromise with modernism. Its vice, as we have indicated, is that along with these notes, there are others setting forth a quite erroneous system of eschatology, as well as errors relating to various other subjects of lesser importance it is to be noted that in the main the chief opposition to the dispensational system which it sets forth has come from reformed theology sources which with few exceptions have been opposed to premillennialism in any form a revised edition known as the New Schofield Reference Bible was published in 1967 some notes have been deleted and others have been added but the dispensational system remains unchanged the members of the revision committee were E. Schuyler English chairman and editor of Oxford Press's Pilgrim edition of the Bible Frank E. Gabeline, headmaster of Stony Brook School William Colbertson, president of Moody Bible Institute Charles L. Feinberg author director of Talbot Theological Seminary Alan A. McRae, President of Faith Theological Seminary Alva J. McLean, President of Grace Theological Seminary Clarence E. Mason, Jr., Dean of the Philadelphia Bible Institute Wilbur M. Smith, Author, Professor in Fuller Theological Seminary and John F. Wolverd, President of the Dallas Theological Seminary Concluding Remarks It is amazing how many of the strongest writers against premillennialism formerly held that system. David Brown, whose book The Second Advent was long considered the standard postmillennial work, was formerly a premillennialist. James H. Snowden, author of The Coming of the Lord, came to postmillennialism from premillennialism as a result of reading Brown's book as he tells us on page 28. Among amillennialists, who formerly held the premillennial faith are Floyd E. Hamilton, author of The Basis of Millennial Faith Philip Morrow, author of The Seventy Weeks in the Great Tribulation and The Hope of Israel William J. Greer, author of The Momentous Event and Robert Strong, author of a splendid series of magazine articles on the subject among premillennial writers who have repudiated dispensational views are Alexander Rees, author of The Approaching Advent of Christ, the strongest condemnation of dispensationalism to date. Reese wrote, Premillennialism never had a greater millstone around its neck than the mass of vagarities that the new scheme propounds to us. A quote on page 295. Henry W. Frost, author of The Second Coming of Christ, Nathaniel West, author of The Thousand Years in Both Testaments, and W.J. Erdman, a collaborator in the production of the Scofield Bible. The famous evangelist R.A. Torrey held the dispensational view for a time, but later rejected it. The noted Greek scholar Dean Alford, so often quoted by premillennialists, is said to have turned from premillennialism. At any rate, late in his life, he wrote, I very much question whether the thorough study of the Scriptures will not make me more and more distrustful of human systematizing, the less willing to hazard a strong assertion on any position on the subject. And Dr. G. Campbell Morgan in 1943, two years before his death, repudiated the dispensational position set forth in his earlier ministry, and in substance endorsed the amillennial position. He wrote, I am quite convinced that all the promises made to Israel have found, are finding, and will find their perfect fulfillment in the Church. It is true that in the past, in my other expositions, I gave definite place to Israel in the purpose of God. I have now come to the conviction that it is the new spiritual Israel that is intended. A quote from a letter to the Reverend H. F. Wright, Baptist Pastor, Brunswick, Victoria, Australia the present writer has a photo copy of that letter. This change in Dr. Morgan's thinking is also reported by Archibald Hughes in his book A New Heaven and A New Earth pages 123 and 210. Those who have been the most vigorous defenders of dispensationalism are its originators John N. Darby his successor in England William Kelly and in this country Schofield Blackstone Gray Brooks, Arnold C. Gabeline, Schaefer, and more recently Feinberg and Wolvard. The fact of the matter is that the church has never yet debated these eschatological questions out to a final conclusion, nor stated her position clearly and positively concerning them as she has done in regard to the other doctrines of the Christian system. Fortunately, however, there is a stern consistency in our thought processes that drives them on to their logical conclusions and separates truth from error. The human mind cannot rest until the inconsistencies are cleared up. Since there is such a radical difference between the millennial systems, particularly between the extremes of postmillennialism on the one hand and dispensationalism on the other, it is a matter of great importance that the true solution should be found. We have set forth the case for postmillennialism, which we believe is the system taught in scripture. We believe that amillennialism is a comparatively mild departure from that system, acknowledging the spiritual nature of that kingdom that is being set up in this world during the interadventual period, but failing to do justice to the glorious future that God has in store for this kingdom specifically that it does not give sufficient weight to what Campbell refers to as all these bright promises of worldwide salvation which sparkle like stars in the firmament of Holy Writ A quote from Israel and the New Covenant, page 284 On the other hand, we believe that the principle of literal interpretation which characterizes all types of premillennialism leads to serious error in that it fails to recognize the truly spiritual nature of the kingdom in this world as manifested in the church and sets forth instead an earthly, political kingdom,
1: that it promotes
0: a superficial method of Bible interpretation, and that it is seriously handicapped by its pessimistic view of the future. In its radical form it divides the plan of salvation into mutually exclusive and even conflicting dispensations, sets law over against grace and the church over against the kingdom, speaks disparagingly of the church, and teaches a restoration of Judaism during the time of the millennial kingdom. While historic premillennialism is a much less erroneous system than is dispensationalism, it is only wishful thinking which assumes that the two can be logically separated and kept in watertight compartments. The two systems are basically the same and must stand or fall together. We believe that we have shown that the scriptures not only fail to teach the premillennial system, but that they definitely exclude it as a possible interpretation. Chapter 21, page 376 The Old and the New Covenant and the State of Israel The establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 was a unique event in that it brought together some of the members, about one-eighth, of a race that has been scattered through the nations for nearly 2,000 years. Many believe that in this they are seeing the fulfillment of promises made through the ancient prophets. But there is much difference of opinion concerning this event. The question is, is this movement of God or only of men? A deep tragedy has befallen the Jewish people in that having given Jesus to the world they find themselves in opposition to him and to the spiritual movement which he established even though that movement has become the faith of most of the civilized and enlightened portion of the human race and today gives peace and hope and satisfying answers to millions of hearts. Yet for centuries the Jews have been trying to erase his name from their memory. The most remarkable phenomenon in the science of Bible study is that only a very few of those who call themselves evangelical Christians take any notice of the fact that the Old Covenant, which we have in the first part of our Bibles, and which we call the Old Testament, was made exclusively with the nation of Israel, and that it has now been replaced by the New Covenant, which we call the New Testament, and which was made exclusively with the Church. I am Jehovah thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage said the Lord God as the old covenant was established with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai Exodus 20 verse 2 hence it pointedly was not made with the Egyptians or the Philistines or the Edomites or the Assyrians and they as Gentile proselytes could come into the nation of Israel and into the covenant relationship only through certain prescribed rituals. The New Testament, which alone is the authoritative document for the Christian church, should be called the New Covenant. Testament, as in last will and testament, means dying counsel. But the New Testament is not the dying counsel of Jesus. Rather, it is the fulfillment of the promise found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31-33. to Behold, the days come, saith Jehovah, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Jehovah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, saith Jehovah. I will put my law in their inward parts and in their heart will I write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews cites this promise, chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. He declares that the new covenant makes the first covenant old, and that it is vanishing away, chapter 8, verse 13, and that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, chapter 9, verse 15. As the old covenant was dedicated with blood, so also is the new covenant. And since apart from the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin, chapter 9, verse 22, so Christ, now once at the end of the ages, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Chapter 9, verse 26 The contrast between the old and the new covenant is brought out in that the rituals and sacrifices commanded under the old covenant had no efficacy in themselves, but were efficacious only in that they pointed forward to the Messiah who in his own person would be their fulfillment and who would offer himself as a sacrifice to God to satisfy divine justice and to expiate the sins of his people. Likewise, the prophets, priests, and kings of the old covenant were but types of the true prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah, who would come and perform his work of atonement in the fullness of time. Thus the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews shows that the Old Covenant has served its purpose and has passed away and that it has been replaced by the New Covenant. It is true, of course, that in the Old Covenant great promises were made to Israel concerning the people, the nation, and the land of Palestine. But those promises were always conditioned on obedience, either expressly stated or clearly implied. Time and again the people were warned in so many words that apostasy would cancel the promise of future blessings that promised blessing could be forfeited for instance the land of palestine was given to abraham and to his seed for an eternal possession genesis 17:8 but the same thing is said of the perpetual duration of the priesthood of aaron exodus 40:15 the passover exodus 12:14 the sabbath exodus 31 Seventeen and David's throne 2 Samuel 7 verses 13, 16, and 24 But in the light of the New Testament all of those things have passed away. We use the same terminology when a title deed grants to the buyer the use of a piece of land forever or in perpetuity not meaning that the buyer will hold it forever but that it becomes his for as long as he chooses to hold it or until present conditions change. Moreover, since the people of Israel were exiled from the land of Palestine for nearly 2,000 years, how could it be regarded as a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham if they are now given possession of it for 1,000 years, as some expect? At the very beginning of Israel's national history, Moses, in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, Set before the people a promise of blessing if they were obedient and a threat of punishment even to the destruction of the nation if they were disobedient see especially verses 13 through 26 and 45 and 46 Jeremiah declared clearly the conditional nature of God's promise to Israel and at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it If they do that which is evil in my sight, that they obey not my voice, then will I repent of the good wherewith I said I would bless them. Chapter 18, verses 9 and 10 Samuel warned the disobedient Eli, Therefore Jehovah, the God of Israel, saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now Jehovah saith, Be it far from me, for them that honor me, I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. For Samuel 2, verse 30 Thus the promised blessing was forfeited, and the house of Eli was cut off, never to be reestablished. Immediately after the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God gave them this apparently unconditional promise. The Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more. Exodus 14, 13 But in Deuteronomy 28:68, 68 when taking leave of the people Moses specifically warned them of the consequences of disobedience And Jehovah will bring thee into Egypt again with ships by the way whereof I said unto thee Thou shalt see it no more again And there ye shall sell yourselves unto your enemies for bondsmen and bondswomen and no man shall buy you Another classic example of an apparently unconditional promise was that given through the prophet Jonah. Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Chapter 3, verse 4 But when the people of Nineveh repented, the city was spared. Although Jonah wanted to see the city destroyed and was greatly disappointed when it was not, he did not feel that God had violated his promise, for we read, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed unto Jehovah and said, I pray thee, O Jehovah, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I hasted to flee under Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 Numerous other such warnings might be cited but these are sufficient to show that no promise will be fulfilled to a disobedient and rebellious people. It was not necessary, and it would not have been good literary form, for the sacred writer to have repeated the threat of punishment or disinheritance every time a promise was given. But it was repeated often enough that the observant reader would know that God would be under no obligation to fulfill any promise to a disobedient Israel. On this basis, we have no hesitation in saying that all of the promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament either have been fulfilled or they have been forfeited through disobedience. As regards the nation of Israel, the fact is that when Christ came and was rejected, he deposed the leaders of apostate Judaism, the Pharisees and elders, and appointed a new set of officials, the apostles, through whom he would establish his church. To the rulers of Judaism he said, The kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and shall be given to a nation, the church, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Matthew 21.43 And because of their sin in rejecting and crucifying the Savior, they were brought into a position in which, as Paul solemnly says, wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. First Thessalonians 2.16 In accordance with this, the entire Old Testament system of Judaism has been abrogated and brought to an end. And in its place, the new covenant has become the authoritative and official instrument for God's dealings with his people, his church. It should be remembered that the church as established by Christ was wholly Jewish and is proved by that very fact to be the continuation and successor of the Old Testament church. It was not until some time later that it was officially open to the Gentiles and when Peter was sent to preach to the Roman centurion Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, and Gentiles began to come into the church, it was not until several decades later that the church became predominantly Gentile. The Gentile branches were grafted into the good olive tree that they might enjoy its fatness and fullness of blessings, Romans 11:17.